Hey everybody and welcome to Cinema Snorkel, the podcast where we dive below the surface of the themes and ideas in movies. I'm Casey. And I'm Carlin. And we're here to deliver for you more of that snorkely goodness. Carlin, what are we talking about today? Today, a big movie came out, well this week, um, Wakanda Forever, which is a sequel without its star of the original movie right. in it. But I'm excited to talk to you about it and hear your thoughts. This place is amazing. The air is pristine. And the water. My mother told stories about a place like this. A protected land with people that never have to leave, that never have to change who they were. What reason do you have to reveal your secret to the world? I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukunkan. But my enemies call me Namor. You just saw it yesterday, right? Last night, yes, I did. Oh my goodness. Hot off the press. I made the mistake of walking into that movie at 6.05 without having eaten dinner first. What I didn't know was I was signing up for a three-hour film... And by a the, visual feast, a visual, but not quite, <laughs> not quite a, not a, a actual real feast, feast. Yes. right? <laughs> which, which at the time of the two choices, my mind was was thinking about an actual feast, um, and so I was a little distracted by my hunger. But you know what? Your notes on this movie are going to be really interesting. <laughs> You're like, there weren't enough cheeseburgers that they they yeah. didn't feature enough awareness of like, cheeseburgers. And what do you eat when you live in the ocean? Do you just eat seaweed and sushi? Um, now, actually, that's a good point. What do you eat? Do you eat fish. the sea creatures? You eat fish. That's the dark truth about Disney. They they didn't want to show you in the Little Mermaid is that yes, we are friends with all the fish, but we ain't vegetarians. There ain't enough protein in a seaweed wrap. Hang on. What does the Little Mermaid eat? Just if you were to give it your best (laughs) shot. Just give it your best honest shot. What does the Little Mermaid eat? Well, she can't eat crab and she can't eat like, I don't know. She doesn't eat. (laughs) So, Casey, I know that um, there's there's like three movies in my mind that are featuring fully um, serious like, we're taking this seriously, underwater civilizations. The first one is Aquaman. The second one is the new Avatar movie that's coming out. And then, although I don't think they live under the ocean, they just swim oh. in it. And then this, Wakanda Forever. And it's cool. It's amazing. I'm sure it's really expensive uh, to make all those scenes where people have underwater civilizations. But I just kind of have a hard time taking it seriously because, like, w- wouldn't their fingers get all pruney? No. They're blue, Carlin. They're blue. The blueness keeps them? Yeah, the blueness keeps them. It is true that with the uh, Avatar Way of Water trailer playing alongside the Wakanda Forever trailer, Mm -hmm. and there's blue people riding alongside whales in both of those trailers, people giving birth to small blue babies underwater Underwater. in both of those trailers. You're like, uh, which movie is this? Uh, Do they have tails? No. Okay, so it's not Avatar. Uh, Do they have have dots on their face? Well, it could be Wakanda Forever or Avatar. We don't know. They have dots on their face on both of those movies. Carlin, what did you like about Wakanda Forever? Um, okay. What I liked about it was also what I didn't like about it. What I liked was the casting. Letitia Wright, Queen Ramona, I think the cast is amazing and they give beautiful performances. The reason why this is the thing that I don't like is I don't think the actors were given nearly enough time to shine. We are so focused on the world building, which also a a great asset, but I felt disconnected from the characters and I kind of wanted more from them. Like we had a few scenes where there's some banter back and forth and that's all great, but I just felt like there was too much packed into this movie. And you know what else, Casey, for some reason, I like halfway through, I was kind of joking when I was talking about dinner, but really I felt kind of disinterested in the movie because I didn't have a strong connection to the characters and i think i could have had that if the script had been written with more dialogue honestly or just better dialogue i don't know more character development and less hoopla and spectacle i wonder carlin if that's just the problem we're at with the mcu at this stage there's so much going on they're always prepping for the sequel they're always trying to call back to their previous things and there's just so much going on that they there's no room to 
sit with the characters. I was going to say on that note, my favorite part was when Shuri is remembering her brother at the beginning and when she's sitting there burning the funeral clothes at the end. That pulled me in. Yes, And I, I would have loved to see more of Shuri. More of that. They just had a lot of needless stuff, like the scientist who is also Ironheart. She's just not necessary for anything in the plot. Yeah. Is she even a MacGuffin? They get, it gets them to go to uh, MIT or wherever they go. She's a MacGuffin in the sense that she designed the underwater vibranium detector, and that's it. We need more of an emphasis on the, like, motivations and character. Mm-hmm. And it felt, ironically, a little repetitive. I felt like they could have showed us more dimensions mm. to those characters versus kind of hammering the same dimensions that they had like they right. did. Shuri is very different in this movie than she was in Black Panther one she has all that spark of energy and sass and and in this one clearly the death of her brother has taken a huge toll on her yeah so i appreciated that yeah what case what did you like about it i really like a couple things one thing that is always compelling about the black panther movies is that sort of afrofuturism and i just remember when that first one came out just watching it going ah man i wish wakanda was real Right. And I, th- I think yeah. that's a universal experience of people watching this movie is like we I wish colonialism hadn't stripped Africa of so many of its resources. And I wish we could reverse the injustice of the past. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a hope and a longing for so many people that draws them to this movie. So I felt that I thought the Chadwick Boseman murals too. like I know that they really wrestled with do we recast Black Panther? Or do we just run with his tragic passing but i there was something about that that i actually thought was really good i like that they're dealing with grief as a central theme of this that that was moving to me because you really love him as a character as an actor and the way that they blended it i think could have felt corny or like heavy-handed or just like not worked but i think it actually did like the way they wove that into the story you know the opening title sequence how they're always like, oh, here's all the Avengers, you know, and we kind of get used to seeing those same clips and how they did, these are only Black Panther clips. I really liked that. But I was kind of asking myself, how come that landed well instead of being something kind of corny or irreverent, Mm -hmm. you know, like we're, we're only remembering Chadwick for his character that we have in the MCU and not for who he was as a real person. Mm. And I was like, wow, because he, he is a real person with a whole life. Like, he wasn't just the Black Panther. He wasn't just King T'Challa in the MCU. Like, he had a family and he had a whole life. But the reason I answered myself, the reason I think that that title sequence worked was because the shots they were showing weren't just action shots of the Black Panther just kicking butt. They were like character Mm. shots of him laughing and interacting with his sister. And they Mm. were King T'Challa. Like it was obviously they didn't break the fourth wall. They're all um, the character. But they were such human shots that made me think, you know what? We know the difference, but we're honoring the actor through his work as the character. Okay, so let's get into what do you think this movie's trying to say? I think in a lot of MCU uh, franchises, like we talk about this with Spider-Man, right? The theme of every Spider-Man is sort of riffing on great power, great responsibility. We saw that in the last Mm. Mm Spider-Man where we won't give spoilers, but he has to make decisions that really cost Peter Parker personally. And he opts for responsibility because he realizes that what he's been given is a gift to be used uh, well. Um, also, they can say that line now in the MCU, which is huge. What, what do you mean now we can say great power comes with great responsibility? What, what changed? <laughs> Sony had the rights to that line and now they don't. Or they, now they're sharing. Everyone's playing nicely with Spider-Man, kind of. They're playing nicely enough for us to use that line. You know, at Universal, we have a Spider-Man ride and it's amazing. It's one of my favorite rides. Um, but you don't ever see Peter Parker in that ride. It can only be Spider-Man. And so that's confusing alone. But then when you walk into the gift shop, there will be um, Peter Parker stuff, like Spider-Man merchandise. And MCU that merchandise. That for all the world, like MCU stuff. It is. Yeah, it's so baffling to me. Well, what some of it is MC, it's just Marvel but it's not quite like all the movies. Like, but there are movie characters, like Disney movie characters yeah. in a Universal 
gift shop. I, I don't understand. It's so confusing. We've parsed out the IP like in so many different ways. But all that to say. It's almost like the IP is the vibranium <gasps> of our what? world. It's, it's the commodity. It's the resource that we're willing to kill over. It's gold. It's better than gold. It's indestructible. It's magic. Just like all the other Marvel superheroes are dealing with a central theme, the central theme uh, in Wakanda for all the Black Panther movies is, I think, um, what is Wakanda going to do? Are they going to isolate? Are they going to help? Or are they going to dominate? And those are the three sort of paths that Wakanda has set before it. And every character who is Wakandan grapples with that theme, given their history as an African nation that's remained hidden, has advanced tech, sort of escaped and subverted colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is the character's unique backstory and they're deciding what to do with it. And that question centers around vibranium because vibranium for the Wakandans isn't just power, it's culture. It's not just a nice metal that they do things Mm. with, it's how they make their heart-shaped herb. It literally has led to the Black Panther. It's got a deep, like, spiritual, cultural significance, too. Yeah, right. So each of the characters, I mean, it's it's obvious to me how King T'Challa has to wrestle with that in the first movie. He's right. literally the king. Right. And then he's faced with scenarios where he has to choose in real time, what are we going to do here? Right. And then you have his girlfriend, who she kind of constantly is taking the side of we need to be humanitarian. We need to offer what we have to the world. They're out there suffering. And if we're doing nothing, like to the extent though, that she separates herself from her culture identity, she doesn't even go to his funeral, which let's talk about that later. Cause I have something to say about that. She's so detached from her Wakandan identity. And clearly that's not what um, I feel like the filmmakers are trying to uphold as the good standard. They're just showing here's, here's kind of two extremes. Um, but how do you see that theme work out in Shuri? Well, I think in the first couple of movies, she is very like globalized, kind of westernized. She listens to really contemporary music. She is like really cool and she's got the internet and like, so she's very much like integrated into the world and she's definitely on Mm -hmm. team. Let's go help people. Right. Um, but Mm -hmm. I think in the first film, it's important to contrast that with their parents uh, King T'Chaka and Queen Ramonda are both very much in favor of isolation, or at least they lean towards isolation, right? So they send out these war dogs who are there to like do these undercover assignments in foreign countries and make sure essentially that vibranium doesn't find its way into the wrong hands. And remember in the first one, King mm-hmm. T'Chaka goes and confronts his brother who's on a war dog undercover assignment and finds out that his brother Mm -hmm. has been, quote, radicalized on behalf of oppressed black people in America because he's living through the civil rights era and he's like, their leaders have been shot, they're being Mm -hmm. incarcerated, they have no resources. If they had vibranium, they could turn the fight around and liberate their uh, brethren and take over these countries under the rule of Wakanda. We could do this. We could inspire global sort of liberation, revolution, with vibranium. And so T'Chaka's brother helps that South African guy steal the vibranium. Remember this? And we think that's why T'Chaka actually kills his brother because he, he went turncoat. Yeah. He, that is why he killed him. Well, he kills him to defend his, his uncle, his brother or his Forrest Whitaker. Then here's the best scene, Carlin, I think in the first black Panther movie, T'Challa takes that heart-shaped herb and he goes to the spirit plane again and he meets with his father who's there, right? And yeah, yeah. T'Challa just asks, why didn't you bring that boy home, Baba, right? He's like, why did, because Killmonger is mm. the son of T'Chaka's brother who grows up sort of in Oakland, like gang-ridden yeah. Oakland and becomes Killmonger. And T'Challa's like, why didn't you bring yeah. him home? And T'Chaka says, I chose our people. I chose Wakanda. Our future depended on protecting vibranium, maintaining the secrecy. Mm. And T'Challa says, all of you were wrong to turn our backs on the rest of the world. We let our fear of, we let the fear of our discovery stop us from doing what is right. 
And he goes, no more. I cannot rest while mm-hmm. he sits on the throne. He's a monster of our own making. I must take the mantle back. I must right this wrong. Wow. It's such an impassioned, like, um, it's, it sounds like a king. It sounds a little bit like Simba uh, going back to take the <laughs> throne, right? Where he's like, it's, I have to do yeah. my duty. I have to do what's right in this situation, not what's easy or convenient. Yeah. And so T'Challa breaks yeah. from the tradition, which represents isolation, and embraces uh, mm-hmm. not just um, stopping the path of domination, which is represented by Killmonger, but um, embracing mm-hmm. a path of helping and protecting the rest of the world. Yeah, that's very uh, compelling. Yeah, that's just such a um, it's a really beautiful uh, story arc and a really beautiful moment for him. And his dad stands by. He's like, "Nope, I'm glad I didn't take him home to Wakanda. Mm. Like I left him there, mm. and I stand by my decision." Mm. Yeah, you can sense that some of the tension in that afterlife scene, but yeah, essentially, yeah, his dad's like, I, he's sad about it, but he felt like he did what he had to, but T'Challa is a leader with a strong mm-hmm. moral compass, and he says, I'm mm-hmm. going to write this wrong. So how does that theme carry through to this movie? Right. That's the question I was going to ask. Like, where is Shuri in all this? Because she has lost literally everyone. Mm-hmm. And she was all for helping, but... Um, something happens in her where she sort of goes down this path of, okay, now I'm for dominating. Yeah. Well, I feel like what the movie's putting forward is her unresolved grief turns into rage in her heart. She feels she's put this responsibility on herself. I'm capable of saving my brother, but she fails. In the moment right when he dies and she's trying to create the synthetic herb that's going to save him and she believes she has the power to do it, but then she isn't, she can't do it in the moment. And Mm. so she fails. And that's when she says the line, I feel like I want to burn the world down. She says to her mom. Mm. Um, And then Killmonger echoes those words back to her. And so does, um, what's his name? The Aztec guy. Oh, um, the wind Namor. feather serpent serpent wet feather foot namor says that back to her too you i heard you talking to your mom you said you wanted to burn the world down well let's do that together yeah. and so her unresolved grief uh is kind of like let's let it off the chain and just go and and destroy uh, dominate giving into that domination and not even just let's open our resources and help the world but we actually have the power to rule the world why aren't we doing that totally i think shuri's unresolved grief is really central to that for her it's like her personal motivation but the mm. match in the powder keg is namor and the his whole nation of uh post mayan you know underwater people talokan is the name of his country and he represents domination almost he's not afraid to go out and kill people who are about to discover vibranium just sort of in a natural somewhat neutral way or am i maybe i'm wrong about that maybe they actually because the vibranium is on the ocean floor they feel like they have a territorial right to it and the movie's trying to say he's justified in defending that vibranium first of all on that question what do you think the filmmakers are trying to say i feel like um they here's the thing i feel like we are meant to empathize with and revere both of these cultures wakanda and telecon they're both examples of people groups that have been dominated and um and put down and so there's something so uh satisfying to see them become these global superpowers that are absolutely invisible to the rest of the world and even they they show like we see a scene in the UN and stuff. Everywhere else in the world just looks drab right. and boring compared to these gorgeous, lush, you know, cities full of culture and right. technology. And we're meant so much to kind of resonate with that, which I I love it. Like I'm I'm all on board, except for they're also trying to portray the 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 wrongdoings of these cultures, and those two things, they're dissonant with each other right and i don't think the movie knows how to reconcile them so we have these mer people 
literally destroy like how many like 30 guys yeah. on this boat and yeah they've what they've done is found vibranium out in the ocean they're not killing of burning a village down you know to get it they just found vibranium and like yeah they're the but it's the government and we cannot trust the government yeah sure but does the whole ship like can there not be a peaceful solution like it, it just feels like we kind of are so excited about having I, I don't know there's just a there's a dissonance there and i really don't think the movie knows what to do with it that's so true they don't know what to do with it when it comes to telecon and the mayans uh they mostly know what to do with it when it comes with to wakanda wakanda is basically good yeah they also have no idea how to treat the us right now um because yeah. we're i think we're meant to like those two like the uh, scientist and the military guy just right at the very beginning and they team up. I really liked those two characters. So when they die, I'm like, Oh, Martin Freeman. no, no, no. These are just side characters at the beginning who kind of have a friendship. They're like, I thought oh, you were retired. The gal who shows up in the helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I like them. I'm rooting yeah, for right. them and they get brutally killed. And so there's some, there's like whiplash in one direction where I'm like, okay, where, when is justice going to be done for that? But then the filmmakers sort of also want to say, hey, look, yeah. we have a, we're, as the underwater Mayan culture, we kind of have a grievance and we're allowed to feel angry and do these kinds of things somewhat. Like maybe it'd be best if we didn't, but you can't deny that we have a pretty good case. And yeah, that was jarring. I, I'm with you. I, I couldn't really find their moral compass in this. It wasn't super easy to find. And for Shuri, she finds her moral compass in what King T'Challa had, his legacy, right? He's a he's a noble king. Um and he does what's right, not what's easy. So we know, okay, that's our compass. We know that's good and we know that Wakandans in their hearts, that's what they aspire to, I guess, or at least Based on his rule and his direction, that's what they're going to aspire to. So that's her standard for what's good and what's not good. Well, with him gone, then she is wrestling and she feels lost and adrift. Like she doesn't even know what's right and wrong anymore, mm. which is why I think the movies, mm -hmm. the movie really did something well when they had Killmonger show up in her sort of ancestral plane, yes. heart-shaped herb ceremony. I thought that was incredible, oh. actually. She thinks she's going to see her ancestors. She doesn't really believe it. Right. But she's kind of like, yeah, I mean, couldn't hurt to try. And But she thinks if I'm going to see anything, it's going to be my mom and my dad and probably my brother because he's like my guiding totally. star. And then horror of horror, she sees the guy who has destroyed everything that she believes and loves and stands for. And she's angry at him, but that doesn't mean she's not willing to use his methodology. Because in her hurt and grief and confusion, she's gone pretty far, actually, down the Killmonger road. I honestly, Carlin, mm -hmm. think the way they set that tension up was brilliant. But oh yeah, my question then is, how did they resolve it? And this is where, in my opinion, I think, and I have to be real, I think the film stumbles a little bit. Because it's not, first of all, entirely clear how they resolve it. It's like someone tied their shoelaces together a little bit, and they trip up on their desire to humanize and elevate the Mayans and elevate the Wakandans. Right. And in doing that, they actually lose the script a little bit on what's right and what's wrong to do. So what happens is, Shuri gets rescued, and... This guy's like, all right, well, I'm going to show up and kind of send this ultimatum. But his ultimatum is killing Queen Ramona and a bunch of other Wakandans. This is an open act of war and hostility. He kills their monarch. Like, this is... and But then he even says something like, oh, well, we just showed up to ask you. We just want to put the question to you and you guys decide. And if you don't join with us and be our ally, then we're going to just have to wipe you out. Um, and this feels like so, such unrealistic, like oversimplification totally. of how actual politics works. Like killing a monarch isn't just something that gets like, oh, well, but she's the side character. What we, who we care about is these other characters. Right. Like, what? <laughs> We're meant to understand. Okay. Wakanda, first of all, has a military power that is unfathomable to, um, you know, the United States and the United Nations and all these other countries in the world so we already have this superpower then we have another superpower and i think what we're meant to understand is that 
A contest between Wakanda and Telecon? Telecon's gonna pulverize Wakanda. So now we've already, we've said like a Googooplux plus 10. Even on this film's own premise, the way they just showed us how that conflict goes down, I gotta be honest, Carlin, was so unsatisfying to me because they have this harebrained scheme to bring a ship out into the ocean and then they're like fighting and the Wakandans get their butts absolutely handed to them. Right, because the water people can heal, like they don't die. Who knows? I, that's never this made clear. Is standard for the MCU? <laughs> anyone can heal. It's um, just standard. Anyone you can, can heal if you need them to. all the way through your gut and you're fine. Shuri does. Except she takes a spear. Tony Stark. She takes a spear through the gut and she is fine. <laughs> she really is just a-okay after that. Um, she's like a little tired, I think she, we could say. She's a bit knackered. She does a front flip. <laughs> well, she's kind of sweaty, too. Here's the thing, Carlin. I don't, I don't want to nitpick physics, but... It matters in terms of the believability of the story they're trying to tell us. And so I just, yeah. the battle was not compelling to me. The stakes felt ridiculous and silly. They might as well have been hitting each other with mm -hmm. silly string and noodles, you know, for how realistic it felt. Except that, here's the thing, like the human stakes are also completely out of whack because hundreds of Wakandans and hundreds of Mayan people die. And the, yeah. the resolution of the whole thing is that Shuri's about to kill Namor and doesn't because her mom says, show him who you are. And so I guess, right. first of all, my question is just, what does that mean? And what are the filmmakers trying to remind us about Shuri that, that would cause her to, first of all, show mercy? And then we can get into the, the consequences of like, does that, does that work? But first of all, just for Shuri, like that line bothers me a little bit because I wish there was just more to it. In there, I mean, it's not untrue. They're tapping into her identity as a Wakandan and as the sister of T'Challa and someone who, who loves righteousness and does what's right. Right. You know, who's going to choose the just thing versus the easy thing. But it's almost like if you're a Wakandan, then you are good. Um, if you're a Wakandan, then you are... It, it kind of plays through with the theme of like, maybe Wakanda actually could um come to dominate and rule the world but it would be a benevolent ruler wakandans are have been trustworthy with vibranium they've been trustworthy with all the power that they have thus far so they would also probably be trustworthy with the rest of the world the main reason and she even says this the queen says this at the beginning i'm not protecting i'm not worried about what vibranium the power of vibranium i'm worried about the power of you i'm worried about putting vibranium in the wrong hands but we kind of set up Wakanda as like a, a nation of perfect people and the rest of the world is corrupt and they would just absolutely destroy, you know, given any power. But the the first movie wasn't quite that stark. No. I mean, there's definitely like we're, we're all like, woohoo, Wakanda. Right. But, um, but they also show examples of Wakandans that are corrupt because humans are corrupt. Like the problem with the world isn't Wakanda versus everyone else. It's humans make a mess of things. Right. You know? In, in any continent and in every country. Right. I, I think that's a really good point. And I guess why it felt unsatisfying to me, Carlin, is that they've muddied the waters so much along those lines that it's not immediately clear what doing the right thing is in this situation. It might mean finishing Namor off because mm. the dude is like on the warpath. And sometimes... He killed the queen. He killed your mom and it's not necessarily revenge to end the life of someone who's set on dominating the world, right? But the movie doesn't mm, lay out the stakes right. for us that clearly. And so we're left with a muddy sense of what is the right thing to do. So to have her mom say sort of just not even do the right thing, not even that, but just remember who you are. My big question is like, what does that even mean in this situation We've also been led to sympathize with Killmonger's perspective that he is also a valid Wakandan uh, who's reclaiming sort of his heritage, right? We know he's the villain. And again, Killmonger is an exceptional villain. I like him as a villain. I think his motivations make yeah. sense. I think he muddies the water in the right way that a villain should. But this movie wants to nod towards mm -hmm. his motivation without clearly telling us, delineating where he goes wrong. And so, in a sense, isn't mm -hmm. Killmonger a part of Wakandan culture as well? And wouldn't it be right for Shuri right. to sort of embrace some of that? Now, I know that the movie's banking on us saying no, but I guess my critique is the movie has no idea why that'd be wrong. 
They don't have a fleshed out worldview enough to answer that question. And I think Mm -hmm. it's because they slip into cultural Mm -hmm. relativism. In essence, they say Mm. one's culture, not universal standards of right and wrong, are the most important thing when it comes to determining what's good and what's evil. And I think, Mm. Carlin, why that's unsatisfying to me is that the first movie was not that way. When T'Challa says, we let the fear of our discovery stop us from doing what is right, period. He's saying Wakanda's been wrong in this. Totally. He says, I must take the mantle back. I must right this wrong. And his, mm-hmm. so his source of right and wrong are something outside of his culture. And what he's doing is bringing his good and beautiful culture, something that is something we're rooting for, in line with standards of right and wrong that are bigger than just Wakanda. And that yeah. lands, that, that feels right. I'm rooting for T'Challa. This movie seems to jettison that idea entirely. And the best they can come up with then is sort of, Wakanda forever like Wakanda is the st- the source of morality huh. but but if that's the case then then what's right what's wrong what's the right thing to do in this case who's the bad guy why are they bad none of those questions have a satisfying answer it's all muddy when you take away the standard for righteousness or the stand the objective morality that's the reason we can say colonization is wrong and that's the, the same reason we can say colonization is wrong is the same reason wh- why we should say humanitarian efforts are right. Right. It's the same standard. Because it's bigger than mere culture. So yeah. in answer to their question, do we isolate, do we help, or do we dominate? What are the filmmakers mm-hmm. trying to say? If you were to just oh, give their, the most charitable interpretation, as the filmmakers grapple with yeah. this question on behalf of a nation... What is right for nations to do? Isolate, help, or dominate? I think they're counting, like you said, they're counting on the fact that we're going to say, well, help, of course. But we are still cherishing the idea of revenge a little bit. Revenge sounds pretty dang good to a lot of us. And um, it's compelling for a reason. And on one hand, we want to say, no, vengeance is not a good enough reason to do violence or to go out into the world and, you know. And in most movies, we agree with that. But I think there's actually something about it that's still a little, like, compelling to us. And the movie is not willing to totally take a stand and say, no, revenge is not a good enough reason. Yeah, revenge is okay in some ways with, like, some restraint. But it's Mm -hmm. definitely not okay against another indigenous culture fueled by vibranium. (laughs) We see the similar... We're meant to see the similarities, right? Like, Shuri goes and kind of gets a taste of their culture and be like, wow, you guys have suffered. Um, Africans have suffered. Like we are unified in our suffering. And that's that's true. That is true. But it keeps her from saying, okay, but now what are you responsible with? Right. To do the right thing or to take your revenge? I think their best attempt at an answer was flashing the montage of the Mayan, uh, Telokan culture juxtaposed with Wakanda people doing normal human Mm -hmm. things and you can feel them Mm -hmm. reaching for an answer there but to me it just doesn't quite settle it because how many of those exact people are dead because of Shuri's actions but there's never really an acknowledgement that like oops I really blew it and I'm grieving the real serious loss of lots of people that are dead because of what I did it sort of just is like a cheap, like, okay, Wakanda forever. Like, we're good. Peace. And everyone's like, yeah, peace on the deck of the ship. Right. It just felt like... And we can all do our little <laughs> clamshell hand gesture that they really hammered in. Yeah. And, and that's a nice and a very cool world building thing. But I think where, yeah, where I land with that is absent deeper moral considerations, that's not enough to answer the question for me. So it feels like, Carlin, where they land with that is kind of do what's best for Wakanda and kind of do a little bit of everything. I was just going to say, do you remember that scene where she's being rescued and she accidentally kills that girl, the fish girl, and she's like, give me one of your beads. Give me one of your beads. Totally. I can stabilize her. Totally. But she leaves and that girl dies. Totally. And that, when I saw that scene, I was like, oh boy, we're sparking a whole nother like circle of this um, like the emotional circle of you, you know, you destroy, you killed my friend. I'm going to come back and kill you. Um, but they kind of dropped that line. Like that gives 
the guy, the Wingfoot guy, his his motivation to attack, but they never revisit it. And Shuri really wanted to save her. Um, right. And I kind of think in an alternate script, maybe Shuri saves her life, even though she has no cause to. And that makes a bigger impact. She even says, like, this is more important that I save this life. That could have made a bigger impact. Um, why, do you, why didn't they why go didn't for that? Why didn't they do they that? set it up. Oh, man. Carlin, that would have been so much better. Because then think about it from the perspective of Namor. Okay. His, like, child has been shot. He holds her as she dies. These yeah, Wakandans right. came in and I tried to offer them peace. And now you know what? It's time for war. So he flies to the surface at the head of an army, tears some stuff up, puts water in their streets, kills the queen. And then he's like, and then he's like, okay, every, now everybody just chill. Because what I came here to do was say, you want to join us? How, how, how are we feeling about this? We good about we good if you join up with us. Think about it. Mourn your losses. I'm a I'm a good. I'm taking this seriously. Go ahead and mourn. Come back to us when you have an answer. Deuces. And he's out. It's like what about that girl? Like, did you care about? Were you doing it for her? It's just anyway. Okay, yeah. whatever. We've said our piece. They they're muddy on that. They just oh yeah. Thankfully for us, though, Carlin, I think the most compelling theme in this movie was not about Wakanda and do we isolate, help, or dominate. I'd love to see them do a good uh, uh, treatment of that along the lines of the first Black Panther, okay? I'd love to, because that theme's not going away in our world. they nailed it. Or in this, yes, Black Panther 1 really did. It was satisfying. All that to say, I found the most compelling theme that the filmmakers were trying to ask was, how do we process grief? And if the film had centered a lot more on that and cut out a lot of the MCU bloat where they're setting themselves up for a sequel and they need to introduce a a perky scientist who designs an Iron Man suit, if they had just focused on Shuri and her mom and the people of Wakanda's grief um, and -hmm. given us just more of like storytelling along those lines, like what... Like, what did that actually look like? What did that actually feel like? I think it could have done better because I think the film shines in that last scene when Shuri's there burning the ceremonial garments. What do you think about that? Totally. Oh my gosh, totally. Um, That's why I think this movie should have been half its length and they could have just let those scenes really sing out. Um Yeah. And, and I think the final message we're left with in that theme is unresolved grief creates chaos and rage and, and destruction. It destroys you in your heart and, it, and then it will bleed out into the world and you'll destroy hmm. the people around you. Hmm. If you're not willing to just sit with the loss, you know, that's where you can actually get healing. Yes. And if they had had Shuri really grapple with and sort of repent for her actions and be like, I have Mm. messed up so badly. What can I do along the lines of T'Challa? What can I do to make this right? And let go of that kind of like, I'm kind of justified in because Wakanda and like, we've been, we've been oppressed. Like if they had just had her let go of that for a second and say, that is true, but my actions here have been terrible. And I, owe it to people to make it right and then she goes and sits on the beach and then she burns the funeral garments boy that could have been a home run the truth is revenge if you pursue revenge you end up becoming the thing that you hate so much Hmm. you end up doing the same damage to other people that was done to you and so you have instead of um evening and evening things out and getting justice for what was mm. wrong, you've actually just doubled the amount of injustice in the world. Mm. Yeah. And the only way to stop that cycle is forgiveness and repentance. Admitting yeah. when you have done something wrong, when you've actually loved evil more than you've loved good. And that's what revenge is. You're, you are, you know, you feel so justified in the moment, but what you've decided is I want more, I, I want more of this evil than actual goodness. That's well said. And that gives us also a moral template for where justice fits into that because justice is real. Justice is not the same thing as revenge. There is a way in which, unfortunately, in a fallen world, uh, 
people who do wrong and consistently do wrong and will not stop doing wrong must be stopped. Um, and that's the whole moral weight behind why we would have superheroes who do violent things anyway, and we still root for them. Violence itself is not the end all of the moral calculus. It's, it's where is vengeance and where is justice and heroes fight for justice. And sometimes they use means that involve stopping evildoers because that's the world we live in, unfortunately. But I do like Carlin that where they landed. The closing credits I thought were so beautiful as she's sitting on the beach mm. and the moral for Shuri, because she's so distracted by technology and she mm-hmm. is a little bit like Iron Man. Like she thinks she can solve the world through technology. Um, but I think mm-hmm. the movie does land and I think they do this part really well. They land with saying, you can't always save everyone. You can't distract your way away from grief. You can't revenge mm-hmm. yourself out of that feeling of grief. You have to deal with it mm-hmm. and sit there and be sad. And I thought that was really powerful at the end. I was really actually pleased and satisfied by that ending for Shuri because it's her personal growth. And that's what the movie was when, you know, they opened on that premise and they closed on that premise. Yep. It's just the yep. middle bits that got a little scrambled and muddy. And I just, but I think that premise is good. And I think I felt myself being sad for Chadwick Bozeman, And I thought, this was oh, a yeah. beautiful tribute to both him and the character of Black Panther. In the ancestral plane. Um, and they refrained from, they could have done that. They've done that in the past. They did it with Luke Skywalker, you know, like they recreate um, actors who have passed all the time. But they didn't. And I was grateful. It felt way more honoring. But they also were unflinching from the fact that, man, a hero, a legend, a really great character um, is not, we can't, is not in the universe anymore. We can't, we're not going to recast him. We're just going to let it, let it be what it is. Maybe they will later. Maybe they'll have another Black Panther, um, but it's appropriate to mourn um, Chadwick. So, and, I, and that's just true. I just think that's true. Let's talk about our Christian worldview and how it comes to bear on these extremely hefty questions. Yes, let's. We've criticized let's do that. Wakanda forever for not being able to navigate that whole isolate, help, or dominate question and how do we mm. deal with cultures. Mm-hmm. What do we have to offer along those lines? Yeah. What, Case, what do you think when you hear yourself ask that question? <laughs> nice. Jiu-jitsu. <laughs> you know, I was struck when I watched this movie by their sort of aggressive pluralist worldview. What I mean by that is a worldview that says all religions are equal, period. Like, do not try to compare religions. Religions are culturally contingent, and therefore they're Mm. meaningful and valuable. And the worst thing you Mm. could do is impose your culture on someone else. That is the unforgivable sin. There's a lot of truth. That correlates to how they treat, yeah, the, the cultural, like what we were saying earlier, that without an objective standard of morality, what we have is culture. Yeah. And yeah, that was totally, I think, the worldview of the filmmakers. Even if they're a little queasy about it, they're not fully comfortable with it. But I think that's essentially mm-hmm. their like bread and butter uh, in this film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's why those questions mm-hmm. are so muddy. Um, I was a little troubled though, Carlin, for a few reasons. First of all, there's a fine line between culture and our ideas about God. Uh, Often they go hand in hand, but they are not the same thing. And when you have a pluralist viewpoint that sort of locks you into that, you run into a lot of problems. First of all was the moral ambiguity that we saw carried through this film. But the second reason is that God is the only source of, of objective moral reasoning, like you were saying, by which we can say that colonialism is bad, right? Mm-hmm. And let's be clear, mm-hmm. colonialism was bad. It, it was a bad thing. In the first movies, they were somehow able to say that without crossing the final bridge and throwing Christianity in there with European colonialism. But in this movie, I think they just crossed that bridge. And they had, mm-hmm. for example, the 
first of all, they had these Mayan and Wakandan deities be real. And then they show mm-hmm. a Christian friar essentially hand in hand with the colonial powers that be saying to Namor, you're a child of the devil. And mm. Carlin, I just can't get behind that. Um, mm. Again, colonialism is bad, but the truth is way more complex. Part of the shame of colonialism is that these conquistadors were advancing symbolism and carrying with them a Bible that most of them had never read. And in they fact, culturally Christian fully in a way that we can't comprehend because we can all read more or less. They couldn't. They were mm. totally dependent on the structures of the Catholic Church as it existed in their Literally, time and place. They they could have been holding a Bible and and wouldn't have been able to read it. Yeah, only a, a few Bible of them would have. Latin, presumably, or yeah, Latin. Yes, it's not even in their language, Castilian or whatever they're speaking. It's written in Latin, so only the priests and friars can read it. Now, here's the thing. Here's what, and I'm just going to nerd out on history for a second because I think it's important. Please do, because yeah, and I think that will help us to understand what's going on. Cause the story is is kind of flirting with all like it's it's talking about history but i don't know if i understand fully it's giving us a view of history that is very much in line with our contemporary view but which doesn't line up to the nuances and complexity of history so for one Mm -hmm. thing you need to understand who the most of the conquistadors were okay some were of noble birth but most of them cut their teeth on wars between muslims on the iberian peninsula and christian kingdoms and I put both of those in quotations. Mm-hmm. You had sort of religious fueled an extension of what was the uh, Muslim conquest of a lot of Europe and then the Crusades, which countered it. And you had 200 years of warfare on the Iberian Peninsula. So a lot of these guys who got in boats and heard there was a new world and wanted to go stake out their claim in it were drenched in blood and they were the foot soldiers mm-hmm. of that war. They were not the ones who were uh, trying to think Christianly about it. These guys were just, to be honest, really good at raiding and murdering and plundering people. They were just, they were like mercenary foot soldiers in this conflict. Um, mm. In fact, Francisco Pizarro and I think Hernan Cortez, who conquered the Aztecs, they grew up in the same, like within 50 miles of each other in a region of mm. Spain called the Extremadura region. And that shaped these men into very hard men. So when they went across the sea, they were primed for conquest. And they, again, like we we're saying, they did not read scripture. They didn't know what was in the book. Here's the irony. The friars they brought with them did, and many of them were complicit in the brutal evils of colonialism. But the Mm. irony is most of the people speaking out against colonialism were Catholic friars. And this is the Mm. part that we're never told. So one name that's really good for people if they want to Google it is Bartolome de las Casas. Okay, he's known as the defender of the Indians in his own day. That was his contemporary title because he read the book. He read scripture and went, you know what? Hang on a second. What we're doing is wrong. Mm. It's wrong for us to advance our culture in the name of the cross and simultaneously murder thousands and tens of thousands of innocent people. This is wrong. So Las Casas appealed to universal morality as revealed to him in scripture to a culture that was almost completely ignorant of Jesus's teaching Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Jesus says, put away your sword, Peter. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus is, is a totally different character than what they advanced. And I'll just add this one piece too, because it's just history and it's just complex like this. Charles V, the monarch of Spain, issued a, an edict mm-hmm. saying, we have to stop with the murdering and killing across the Americas. And he did that because he understood that he was a Christian emperor and that it was his responsibility to protect his new citizens. The problem is these guys in Spain or Mm. these guys in the Americas just didn't care. They just didn't give a rip what their monarch a thousand, 2000 miles across an ocean had to say, and they did what they wanted anyway. So it was a question, not of ideology first and foremost, but, uh, enforcement, in the sense that they just couldn't stop these Mm -hmm. conquistadors because they were driven by primarily economic considerations. That is personal gain to this new world and take what they want. And who's going to stand up to them? 
Absolutely. These were impoverished guys who were really good at fighting and suddenly discovered a brand new world of empires to conquer. And they just went for it. And there was no stopping them. It, it was an economic conquest using the terminology of the cross that very few of these guys actually understood. Mm, but they embraced it as their banner. Totally. Here's why I say this, Carlin. Scripture all through the Old and New Testament is not naive about people's capacity for bloodshed and avarice and conquest. And the prophets again and again are clear about evils done along those lines. They don't, they don't soft pedal it. But what they are clear about is that there's a God over everything. And our responsibility is to do what is right in his eyes, not what our culture says. And so while the norm of human nature is conquest, and also while we cannot excuse evils done in the name of the cross, in fact, the task of Christians is just to lament and repent for those things that have been done in Christian history. We also need to remember that the only tool we have to oppose them ideologically comes from a belief that God is God of everyone and he's the God over all and that he's explicitly communicated to us in scripture that taking things and killing people and destroying entire culture is wrong and we shouldn't do it. That's my soapbox. No, that's so good. I mean, it, it's such a strong reminder to, to read scripture <laughs> and to go back to who is God? Who does he say he is? And what does he demand from us? Because he's not easy on the people who abuse his name. I was just, uh, I heard a, I heard a sermon about the 10 commandments, which, hmm. you know, I think everyone is familiar with the 10 commandments. They're like embedded into culture, but the, this approach was like, what did the 10 commandments say about the character of God? It's like, okay, if these 10 are the ones that God, I mean, they're not the only commandments God ever gave. But if these are the ones that he so closely like so so closely aligns with, they inform us about him. What do they say about him? He protects a, a person's right to property, a person's right to dignity. He doesn't want there to be killing and injustice. He doesn't want there to be taking and stealing from each other. He wants there to be like, and and it's interesting to just go down through the list. Um, but it's just a different way of looking at at who he is he protects the vulnerable and i think it's so critical to remember that the story of scripture is god appointing a chosen nation but they're not chosen and he says this explicitly he's like don't think israel i'm choosing you because you're so special i'm choosing you because i have a task for you to perform you're to be a blessing on the earth for all people and establish justice mm -hmm. and righteousness justice meaning doing right by your fellow human beings including very much again and again over and over again widows orphans and foreigners because god says you were slaves in egypt Okay, so that's justice. Righteousness means our conduct before the God, like our vertical relationship with God. So am I worshiping mm -hmm. things that aren't God? Am I personally, in my own personal life, doing wrong things, right? We need justice and we need righteousness. And that's why God appointed Israel. And when they failed to do that, when they lapsed into the same practices of the evil nations who came before them, child sacrifice, oppressing widows and orphans and foreigners. God said, okay, uh, we're going to wrap this up. <laughs> he essentially brought justice on them. The point being that there's a source of justice higher than our national identity that both dignifies and redeems our national identity and prevents it from being the end-all, be-all. And without that, we're going to have a muddy moral calculus when it comes to these really difficult questions of how do we process colonialism and indigenous cultures, should we isolate, help, or dominate? There's no real template for answering those questions without a source of universal morality, but that's what Christianity gives us. We talk about this again and again, but Jonah and the Ninevites is my favorite example. Mm -hmm. Jonah is yeah. tasked with going to Nineveh because God says they need to repent. Their evil has risen up to me to the point where I'm going to bring justice on them and wipe them off the face of the map. So go give them a chance to repent. Okay. Jonah goes to Nineveh, uh, after a series of unfortunate events where he tries to run away, gets eaten by a whale, gets spit up on the shore, goes to Nineveh, says guys repent or whatever. Not that I care goes away. <laughs> All of Nineveh just is like, what? 
The God of the cosmos is asking us to repent. We repent. And they turned away from their evil. Yeah, and God is like. actually do. And then Jonah, one of God's chosen people, sitting up on the cliff going, all right, Lord, let's have the fireworks. I'm ready for these Ninevites to be absolutely obliterated. And God is like, what is wrong with you? Shouldn't I care about these Ninevites? There's 10,000 people down there, not, not to mention their animals. Why are you sitting here waiting for me to wipe them off the face of the map? I want to show compassion on people. That's who I am. I'm Yahweh. I'm, I'm slow to anger and quick to compassion. And the moral of the story of Jonah is, a, well, it's a lot of things. First of all, that um, just being part of the chosen nation isn't enough. You have to act with righteousness and integrity. But second of all, that God wants to show compassion on every nation and any nation, even Assyria, who, by the way, captured the northern kingdom of Israel, led them into brutal captivity. Even if they repent and turn towards God, he's willing to spare them. I know I went on a huge tangent there, but that's, those are some of the resources the Christian worldview brings to bear. It's essentially created our modern conception that we should help people of other nations. Mm-hmm. And it kills me that they, like many people in our culture today, are unable to see the forest through the trees there. And so they throw the baby out with the bathwater and sort of assert subliminally that Christianity not only is the same as every other religion, but that it alone is uniquely evil for daring to impose its worldview on others. When in reality, Christianity is the one resource we have. And sorry, on this, Carlin, the Mayans, mm-hmm. and the, along with the Aztecs, were a brutal and bloodthirsty people. Yeah, I was just thinking about one of the primary things we know about them we don't know a lot because they just didn't have a lot of like written text that survived but they they regularly made human sacrifices to their gods yeah the mayan religion taught that human sacrifice was the food of the gods it nourished them and they needed a regular supply of it so when they would go conquer their enemies they would bring them to the top of these ziggurats that we still see in latin america and they'd kill hundreds and thousands of people from the top and let their blood flow down the channels down there to nourish the gods. So lest we have, and again, I know the MCU is fiction. I don't think they need to, I'm glad they don't include like a detailed list of every nation's wrongdoing in order to celebrate the goodness of different cultures. Like I'm glad they don't do that for Captain America. I'm glad they don't do that for Wakanda. And I'm glad that they don't do that even for the Mayan culture because there's beauty in that culture too, as crazy as that is. That's just true of all human cultures. Um, Mm -hmm. But my point is that if we're going to elevate culture as our God, as our source of what's right and wrong, uh, it's just a foolish way to go. It's going to lead us into a mm. vision of the world that just isn't true. Just because a culture was indigenous does not make it a source of goodness and virtue. Likewise, just because colonizers had a cross on their shield does not make them a source of goodness and virtue. Christian morality cuts deeper than that. It strikes me that um, by saying one culture is inherently good and another culture is inherently bad. Like if the worst thing you can do is dominate someone else's culture, then the cultures, the dominating cultures are bad. But when you put them into categories, that black and white, good cultures versus bad cultures, you end up becoming a colonizer. You show up and say, my culture is better than your culture. So I'm going to, I'm going to establish it over you. Right. We make it into a zero sum game. Just like revenge, you be if you are so torn up about your defending your own personal gain, you end up becoming the thing that hurt you that you so viciously are trying to destroy. Yeah. Thing I've I just said I want to be sensitive to the pain that many people, uh, African Americans, people of color. Uh, indigenous people feel in our Mm -hmm. modern world. Mm -hmm. And I want to be clear that there is real injustice to lament there. Um, And to the extent Mm -hmm. that the Black Panther movies channel that, I think it's a good thing. I just want them to reach one level deeper for a better solution, a better answer, a clearer moral framework Mm -hmm. by which we can, by which we can actually see the lines of where injustice actually occurred versus where we're just sort of engaging in cultural supremacy 
right? Um, we need a better moral calculus. They, they, they almost kind of got in Black Panther 1. I think they had it in Black Panther 1. I don't think any movie does it perfectly, but, you know, just like Steve Rogers is willing to critique different parts of American culture, whatever, like we're, we're dealing with culture, we're swimming in it, but it can't be our standard for right and wrong. And I think Black Panther 1 did an amazing job by just showing us T'Challa, a, a king who is willing to buck tradition where it counts, but embrace tradition where it's beautiful and hold fast mm-hmm. to it. I think, I think he was a brilliant example of that. And to be honest, I was mm-hmm. excited to see Queen Shuri in action because I felt like this is a good character. She's got a strong moral code. And I don't mind them dragging oh, yeah. her through the mud a little bit as she processes this stuff. I just wish they would have mm-hmm. come out with a clean answer that lets me go, yes, Shuri, yes. As it is, she and killed a bunch of people. All, yeah, if they had skipped like all of the middle sections of the film, they could cut the engineer girl. She was a useless character. Like they could have cut that. They could have cut all of the underwater uh, scenes of the country. They could have just hinted at the fact that there's a threat. Uh, they could also cut all of the uh, Martin Freeman scenes. Like all of that. Yeah, he's just, not needed. Like just absolutely like token. You know, like here's our token totally. white guy. Like why do we bother? <laughs> just don't don't bother. Um, so funny. And they could just zero in on Shuri and her mom and these relationships and her finding what is her motivation to do what's right. It could have been a a slam dunk. Um, But we got distracted by all the bells and whistles. What I did like was Shuri's grappling with grief. To me, that's the takeaway from this movie. It was beautiful. And even how just aesthetically the flames kind of ate at that like gorgeous Wakandan pattern that just says to me so much about the nature of grief and that there's um, almost a beauty in grieving and it's okay to be a little bit exorbitant in remembering the ones we love. I thought it's so mm-hmm. cool that Wakanda has everyone have these one-use outfits that are white. I thought that was beautiful yeah. and a really unique gorgeous aspect of culture that they contributed here and it that was that was moving and beautiful to watch i was really grateful for that in this film along those lines okay what is grief remembering this cult there's like a uh yeah the funeral ceremony there's something really important about giving reverence to and that begins the grief process nakia shows up and um the general is like hey, it really hurt when you just disappeared. Like, T'Challa died, and you're, you, you're almost part of this family. You're part of this culture, and you ghosted us when we, when we were, like, in the midst of this horrible tragedy. And her response was like, I just... Um, he was everything. To him, to everyone else, he was the king. But to me, he was everything. And I just thought, how selfish. Yeah. Like, yes, you had a special relationship with him, but... He was, this is a mother's son and a sister's brother. And, you know, like he was, he was embedded in all of these people's lives. And somehow you feel like you had Uh. a special claim and the grief was too hard for you to face. So you just dipped and that's okay because my feelings are more important than showing um, comfort and solidarity with all these other people that are also uh, mourning and that's the thing is when you go to a funeral y- it's not about you it's like wearing white to someone else's wedding like you show up to the funeral and you you're grieving the person but you're also grieving with the people yeah that are grieving him the most his family you know and so i just was so dissatisfied with her answer but i feel like it was just poorly conceived like they just threw that in there and were meant to resonate with her and be like yeah sometimes your grief is but no, that was selfish. And, and you can be selfless and still grieve appropriately. In fact, that's a way more honoring way to grieve. Honestly, Carlin, that to me is a really stark illustration of two cultures clashing. On one hand, you have a traditional uh. African value, which is we're in this together. Show up to the funeral. Yeah. Celebrate the life with us. Like Just be there. You're a part of this. And on the other hand, you have expressive individualism where people are like, you mm. know what? I needed some me time and that's okay. And the filmmakers are simultaneously trying to dignify her answer there and pretend like it's fine and okay. And they're trying to uphold this traditional African value. And it doesn't jive. They're contradictory answers. And that, to me, illustrates why you can't use culture to answer the the difficult questions of culture. 
you need a higher source yeah. of value to say, you need to do what's right by the people around you. And while that is culturally yeah. informed, there is such a thing as selfishness and you probably should avoid that. Yeah. One of those responses is better than the other. Yes. And, and it's not because one is cultural and one is not cultural because, yeah, it, the expressive individualism is American culture. Totally. <laughs> it's wrong compared to what she could have done, which is to show up. Yeah. How do we judge culture against itself? It's so that that is such a good illustration of the the uh, theme we're talking about here. They do try to resolve it at the end, and I can't remember if there's a credit scene or just at the end of the movie where T'Challa's son is there with Nakia, right? And Nakia says, the queen mm -hmm. asked me not to come to the funeral, uh, and that's why I didn't come. So I see what they were trying to do there, but you know where they could have made that really clean is by just um, letting Nakia's answer ring a little hollow and uh, let us feel sad with the bodyguard lady and just be like, yeah, that was kind of a dirt move to like not show up. Like, let that sadness be there. Don't try to like synthesize expressive individualism and dignify it in the face of missing yeah. someone's funeral. Let it be sad and then reveal that, yeah, that was sad and hard, but um, I actually did it because, look, here's T'Challa's son and I was asked to miss this funeral. Is that, is that what um, my final grievance was going to be? When <laughs> let fly, Carlin. What's your final grievance? Queen they're sitting out in the bush. Cool scene, right? How they just strip away all the... They're like, we're yeah. going to just go back to the roots of like Africa. And they're watching these elephants. And I'm like, they're yeah. also not afraid because I would be terrified if I was just out in the bush. Like yeah. anything out here could... But they're they're like these, you know, warrior um, princess and queen. So they're, they're safe. Um, but they're out there talking. And she goes, there's something I never told you about T'Challa. And then right then they get interrupted by by fish pants. And then they never came back. They never, <laughs> we never find out what we didn't know. Yeah, what the Maybe heck? It's that he has a son. He has a son. Is that the thing? Well, let me, I mean, do you think that's what they were going to reveal right there? I can't really remember the context. Was that what she was going to say? Shuri is like, she's, she's, if I, if I let myself feel sad, I'm going to burn the world down. It doesn't seem like her mom's going to be like, well, that's the thing about your brother. He has a son. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah, just yeah, doesn't yeah. feel like that would be the, it just doesn't seem like that would be the moment. There's something I never told you about T'Challa and the MCU is not going to tell us either. Apparently that really bothered me. Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. We miss Chadwick Boseman. This was a, I think on the whole, I'm going to say a good installment in the series. And good and long installment that should have been happening. Like you just needed a cheeseburger before you before you went to see I the was. movie. Car, I was hangry. You man. were hangry. I was hangry. Hey, don't give hangry in to the hanger. We'll see you next time on another thrilling episode of Cinema Snorkel. Later's.